This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Hi, LSPod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to The Love Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen. Proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Oh, a good goal! Last post for Shearer, goal! I will win this league anyway. Richard, he's hit it. It's Cradwell! Good to speak to you, Rich. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for agreeing to participate. And what is the 150th episode of the Low Strangers podcast? Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I can't help feeling that there should have been someone with a bit more of a uh, um, recognised Swindon Town career than myself for that. But there we go. I'll try to make it entertaining. More obscure, the better for me. (laughs) Good stuff. Okay, so we'll kick off usual question for anyone who's listening to this. Who did you support when you were younger and who were your childhood football heroes? My first club that uh, I really, really followed, and this has changed over time because of my son's interest now, but um, I used to go to watch Nottingham Forest quite regularly from about 82 to around about 87, 88, I'd say. Probably at least half the home games um, in a season. And bear in mind, I was growing up in Bristol, so I can still remember it was um, 137 miles from my house to the city ground. Uh, And my dad, yeah, used to take me. I don't know why I was a Forest fan at that time. It could be, uh, it, it wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't um, able to remember the European Cup winning days. Um, so 82, you know, they were, it was still a good first division side, but um, I, I certainly don't think I was a 
a glory hunter. Um, but um, I feel privileged to have watched that team because although it wasn't um, the team that you know won the title um, and, and as I say won those European Cups, it was still a really good Forest side. And so I grew up watching you know people like Des Walker. Uh, Nigel Clough, Peter Davenport, Gary Bertels, um, Stuart Pearce, uh, Neil Webb. And I guess they, they all became kind of my heroes through that time. I don't think anyone else followed Forrest at my school. And I just remember a lot of kids at that time wearing the Liverpool shirt with crown paints. You know, 80s, they were the team that dominated and won everything. Um, so, yeah, that was the that was the team that I um, grew up um, supporting. Um, and, yeah, I mean... It, it, Peter Davenport was someone which is probably, you know, people who are a lot younger won't have heard of Peter Davenport. And, um, but he was certainly one of my heroes in those in those days. It's just nice that you didn't say Bristol City or Rovers, given that you're Bristolian. Yeah, and I was, ne- I was never really drawn to either of them. I do remember for a friend I played football with actually as a kid who went on to be a professional footballer, um, uh, played for Oxford United there, I say, um, Bobby Ford. Um, and uh, myself and Bobby played for the same junior teams, Avon Athletic in Brentry. Um, Bobby lived in Bedminster, which is strong Bristol City territory. And uh, I went to one of the, um, was it, it was Freight Rover, I think, back in those days. I do remember standing on sort of terrace in at Wembley and watching Bristol City, but I, I sort of dragged along a little bit. And I also remember showing my age now going to Eastville um, back in the days when that was Bristol Rover's home. Um, but it was never really through choice, if I can put it like that. Someone saying, oh, you know, do you want to come and watch a game kind of thing? And uh, yeah, I was never a fan of either of the two Bristol clubs. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. What were your memories of playing football as a kid? Obviously, you're going to watch Nottingham Forest on a regular basis. So I imagine you played the Sunday junior scene. What, what was the standard like there? And how easy was it, for want of a better phrase, was it to be scouted during those days? My mum was um, the first person who took me along to join uh, a junior football club, a club called St. Nicholas, um, which is based in Yate in in Bristol. And uh, I was so keen to play. It was under 10s and I was a year younger. Um, So although I was one of the eldest, I was September birthday. um, But that set in place something I kind of did throughout my childhood, really. And that was always play up a year. Um, So I was technically the youngest one in, in, in the team. And then after a year at St. Nicholas, and I have to say, we were absolutely hopeless. We, we got hammered pretty much every week. And I still remember getting paid. The, the person who scored the first goal of the season for us got 50p. Um, and I remember scoring it. At, um, and, I, and that would surprise people who know me because I, I never scored many goals in my career full stop. But uh, yeah, we lost. Typically, we lost 4-1, I remember, against Wooten under edge that day. And um, But that season was probably quite good for me in a way, Rich, because it, it, you know, Thereafter, I played in teams that won an awful lot of games. Um, and the team I went to join the following season was Avon Athletic. And that was where Bobby Ford, who would later go on and play for Oxford United, played. Matthew Hayfield, who played for uh, Bristol Rovers. Um, and we pretty much, Matthew Hewlett, who ended up being Bristol City captain. Uh, Matthew played a year up uh, like me. Um, and, and we, you know, we had a really good team. Uh, and we kind of dominated um, the sort of junior scene in our in our age group. And uh, the first time I was scouted, um, it's a funny story, this, um, was by Southampton, playing for a representative team for the league. And uh, the previous representative game, I was awful. I had a terrible game. And I'd stayed over at a friend's house 
and uh, I think we had a late night, um, probably staying up watching a film, something like that. And my dad was always quite hard on me. He, he's he's my biggest critic, biggest fan, but um, I played really poorly that game. And I remember him giving me quite telling off about it, as, as you do, the dreaded car journey home, that kind of thing. And so I was dropped for the following game. And this game, um, I don't remember who it was against, but I can remember it was played where it was played at a place called Beggar Bush Lane in Bristol. And um, and I came on at half time and, and I played really, really well. And uh, the scout um, who picked me up, a guy called Rod Ruddick, who worked for Southampton, uh, he, he discovered Gareth Bell, actually. So he, he did get some right. He, did, he got them wrong like myself, but he got a few right as well. Uh, and Rod approached me about... Uh, three, four months after, I guess, playing in one of these sort of standard six-a-side tournaments in the summer. And he came up to me and um, and just said, uh, I watched you, you were the number whatever who came on and played in that game that day um, and uh, and asked me if I'd like to go and have a trial at Southampton. So they were the first club that I joined and they were probably a bit of ahead of their time in, in terms of how they scouted around Bristol. And obviously they've retained that satellite centre in Bath where lots of players have come through over the years. And uh, yeah, that was the the first real experience I had uh, there. And and then this um, strays into slightly difficult territory, really rich, because my uh, coach there was was Bob Higgins, who um, has uh, you know since been uh, imprisoned um, as part of the uh, huge investigation into. Uh, child abuse around football. Uh, I um, have to say I wasn't a victim, um, fortunately, but I, I, you know some strange things went on there. Looking back, I ended up writing a piece for the Guardian about that uh, three, four years ago, which um, I didn't find very easy to write. I have to admit, and and it, I remember ringing my my mum the night before and so I don't know I must have been 39 40 years old then and I don't normally ring my mum to say look this is what I'm writing the next day um and uh and I started reading the story out to her I don't know why I didn't just send it as an email because reading it out made it more far more difficult and and then she said to me mm, I think I better speak to your father about this and then she said words to the effect of you didn't mention any of this sort of at the time and and I don't know I guess you just I didn't know any different. That was the first professional football club I'd ever been to. And uh, yeah, so we, we'd go off to, in the, every half term, go off to an army camp uh, at Tidworth, which is where Southampton uh, trained the kids, you know, and there were, um, I won't say all the names, but there were lots of lads in there who went on to play professional football uh, and who were good mates of mine. Um, but yeah, we had to do, we had to do strange things there looking back you know we and it, it, the, the football and this is where it's strange rich the, the football was the football coaching was superb bob higgins as a coach was absolutely outstanding um and you know the way he would work uh breaking down something like heading the ball uh, was was really you know superb um he, he could he could make it easy for you to understand he could demonstrate as well and he had this kind of aura about him um, and naturally he was the one you wanted to impress because he was in charge of Southampton's youth setup. He had all the power, as we now know, power that he abused. Um, uh, and, you know, some people have been through some uh, horrific times as a result of Bob Higgins. So, you know, for me personally, I, I don't look back on that chapter with any real fondness, but it was my first experience of... Um, 
of professional football. And yeah, there were there were some you know strange things. I, I touched on it in the article I wrote for the Guardian that time. And you know, on an evening we we would all go into one of these dormitories and end up. Um, he liked to have a show where you'd have to get up and sing in front of everyone, which I personally I hated. You know, some of the boys thrived in that situation and all the rest. And um, I'd be 40 or 50 of us in there and you'd have to get up and, and, and sing and he'd nominate whoever it was. And, um, and and at the time it was sort of, yeah, that's character building. Um, but you look back now and start, you know, I've, as I say, I don't feel comfortable with any of that period. But um that ultimately is where I had my first experience of of playing football and I think Higgins left under a real cloud without Southampton communicating why he'd gone um and this is a measure of what a good coach he was and that people didn't know the other side at the time a lot of people were disappointed when he left now you know we must obviously realize it was the best thing that could have happened but he left quite a few players left as well and around that time which would have been about um, I guess in 88, 89, I've been having trials with other clubs like Watford, where I really enjoyed it up there. They had several Bristol lads there, including Jason Drysdale, who was a few years older than me. He'd obviously later, later gone to play for Swindon. Um, and uh, and I was um, training with Aston Villa quite a lot at that time. And that was where I ended up signing schoolboy forms when I was 14 years old. And uh, I'd go up there, play every weekend go up there for half term and carry on playing grassroots football as well in Bristol, uh, which which I feel is a real shame with academies these days, that kids can't do that. And at a very young age, seven, eight years old, they're leaving behind the football with their friends, which for me was was really, really brilliant and um, you know something I enjoyed. I've got to be honest with you, I'm really interested with, with junior football and how it's evolved in time because... Of what you say, really, because I've had, I've spoke to people like Charlie Austin, who's dead against young kids in academy systems because it should be just about kicking a ball about with your mates and uh, and just enjoying it. And you do see lots of all the success stories that we see in football. We do see the ones that not just leave football as a, as a as an academy or as a pro, but they leave football altogether because their interest is drained by the demands of an elite academies now, aren't they? Yeah, I agree with Charlie there. Uh, my son's eight years old and um, he's part of an independent development centre in Bristol, which is fantastic for me because they play games every, say, two games a month ordinarily against professional academies. And he trains once a week with that development centre. He also plays with his grassroots club on a Saturday and a Sunday and he trains with them once a week. So he's got the best of both worlds, I feel. Um, yeah, I it's difficult because um, obviously clubs want to attract the best young players, but I just feel at that age, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, a lot of kids emotionally, I don't think they're, I don't think they're um, ready for that level of commitment. I don't think they're ready for the disappointment that might come with it. And, and, you know, I was let go by Aston Villa at the age of uh, 16. And I remember being, devastated at the time and that was as a 16 year old and finding that really quite hard I remember the journey back from Villa's training ground at Bodymore Heath with my mum and dad that evening and I was saying to my you know my dad for the first time I didn't really have a I didn't have a club um, and that was quite difficult for me when football was all I wanted to do to get my head around and so to put an eight nine ten year old in that situation um, personally I just think it's too soon and and um, I don't see why 
they still shouldn't be able to play grassroots football at that age. Um, I think for me, it ends up being them more about the club trying to stop someone else being able to take them than actually what is right for the kids' um, overall approach to life. Because you just lose your childhood, Rich. That's the thing. I see some of these kids now who are doing it, and I know some of the parents, and you know they're doing four times a week at age eight, nine years old. You know, traveling from Bristol to London um, on a on a Sunday morning. You know, and getting on a minibus and saying cheerio to their parents seeing them at the game and then not actually having time with them again until six o'clock in the evening. And I just, I just think that's a massive, massive commitment for what we all know is likely to end in disappointment. Completely agree. Yeah. I mean, you were at Villa at a time where senior wise, they have those sort of three or four yo-yo seasons in the top flight where they struggle one season, next season, they're second, then they struggle again and then they go up again. So just to be a part of that club at that time must have been a, a huge boost for you and sort of like your development as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really liked Villa. I, I had a lot of trials um, and, you know, I went to Forest actually, which <laughs> which obviously was a club I loved as a kid and I, and I came away so disappointed. I just didn't feel comfortable there at all. It, it, the environment wasn't something that where I felt settled and I did feel, I did feel happy at Villa. We... Uh, there was three of us from Bristol, so that made it easier. We'd, we'd travel up together often on a on a Sunday morning. And sometimes, yeah, we watched the first team games. We You got complimentary tickets and I'd often go up with dad or um, uh, when we were on half term, we'd all go along to the games, obviously. And, and you're right, there was some special, were some special players there then. I mean, I remember the season they were going for the title under Graham Taylor and um, I think they signed Cascarino to try and sort of push them over the line and unfortunately it ended up going going the other way but I remember being there on that midweek night when they beat Inter Milan 2-0 I seem to recall uh, I think Kent Nielsen scored a, uh, an, a superb goal and yeah Platt was a really uh, up-and-coming figure at that time so yeah they were they were exciting moments but you know what you you take a lot of it for granted Rich do you know what I mean I, it, is, your, is your asking me that question now I'm thinking I never really stopped to think how fortunate I was you know and, and actually I don't know what division City and Rovers were in at that time, but it, it, it probably weren't. It probably wasn't that great. The football and the you know Rovers may well have been at Twerton Park. I don't know. And Ashton Gate was clearly nothing like it is now. And now I was going to Villa Park every other week and training at Bodymore Heath, which was a superb training ground at the time. But you almost need someone. People obviously say, oh, you know, you're lucky to be doing that. But you almost need someone to tap you on the shoulder and say, you've really got to make the most of this. You really have to um, because. Uh, I'm not sure I always thought in those terms, but maybe you can't as a 14, 15-year-old. I don't know. It's all about, you know, patting them on the back and all that that they think this day, but I'm afraid I, I won't do that. If they, if they get praise and I say well done, they know they've done well. When, when I look up your career and I research it, I see sort of the numbers that's given to you when you're at Swindon, which we'll get to in just a minute. Sort of you, you, sometimes you get the number two shirt, and sometimes you're in like the midfield positions. What position were you? Uh, I still don't think I can answer that question now. Um, <laughs> and actually, in a way, that ended up helping me get a contract at Swindon, funnily enough. I came to Swindon on trial, I think. I mean, I was feeling pretty low after I'd been let go in about the January of that year, which had been 92. Um, and then uh, I think Villa may well have circulated my name. And I believe it was Adrian Ridderford, who was the youth development officer at Swindon at the time, who made a phone call and said, would you like to come up and play a game or two for us? 
And I think I went then as, I think I played centre midfield. And yet at Villa, I would have been playing right midfield at that time. I had a real growth spurt. I was one of the smallest in the team at 14. 16, I shot up a hell of a lot. And my body was struggling to adjust to it. Uh, And that was a bit of a problem I had at Villa. And uh, I remember speaking to the club about it with my mum and dad at times. I was, uh, the whole growth spurt thing on my, my legs felt really, really heavy. And, and uh, I was you know, struggling a little bit with that physically. And, and then that impacts mentally. But yeah, I went to Swindon. I played centre midfield in a few games. And I don't know if I'd have ended up getting a contract there. I really don't know. It would have been in the balance. And then someone got injured in a game early on. I couldn't tell you who we were playing for Swindon, but... I ended up playing at the back and and I played really, really well there. And that well that I could tell John Trollope, who was never an easy man to please John, uh, uh, was really happy with how I'd performed. And I think that was a game changer for me in terms of going from someone who might have got a contract, might have been what they called non-contract in those days, to actually being where, where those boys still came in, but they didn't enroll on the scholarship or the uh, trainee scheme as it was then. Um, to suddenly being one of those guys, okay, we're going to give him a contract. And and so that, then, from then on, and bear in mind, I hadn't played at the back for my whole time playing kids football or at Villa or at Watford or at Southampton, wherever. Suddenly I'm joining Swindon as an apprentice. I'm playing, um, playing centre-half. But that came about, obviously, as well, because the club at that time, and, and you look look back now and, Hoddle, what what he did at Swindon, he was so ahead of his time, you know, with getting all the teams playing that formation, the three centre-halves, the five in, or the three in midfield, the two wing-backs, two up front. And that's how the youth team was playing. So I was coming in to play centre-back in a team that was going to play out from the back. And you weren't seen as a typical, you know, go and win the ball, win ahead of centre-half. You were get it down and play. And that helped me greatly. You know, I don't think um, I don't think I'd have played like I uh, would have impressed someone in a four-four-two at that time in the same way that I did at Swindon that time. So, yeah, I, I then um, I think I must have got a phone call. Um, it probably would have been Adrian rather than John, and uh, and just saying, you know, we'd like to offer you a youth trainee uh, scheme place. And I was just absolutely, you know, thrilled to bits. Uh, it was what I always wanted to do. My mum was really big on education in particular. Um, my dad was to an extent, but more my mum. And uh, and she'd have probably quite liked me to stay on and do A-levels. I remember having a chat with um, John and Adrian about that. And they weren't very receptive to the idea. It was, you know, in a polite way, it was sort of made clear that you're not going to have time for, for that. You know, you'd be busy with your football and so I just did the normal day release at college on a Thursday with the rest of the Swindon boys. And they used to pay me to do their homework quite often, And uh, if I'm honest. <laughs> so uh, that was the way uh, I topped up my £29.50 a week, um, what I was getting as a, as a trainee. So, so yeah, my few of those Swindon boys would have been with the club who in my year for, for a long time, obviously. But I was sort of parachuted in quite, quite late and so then started in must have been the beginning of July uh, 1992. What's it like coming in as one of the newbies when some of the other players are used, have been around each other for, for years? Challenging, but then I think I always had that, Rich, because I wasn't with either of the two Bristol clubs. You know, I went to, as mentioned some of those trials, I went to, you know, Nottingham. I was the only Bristol guy there at, at Forest. And, and, and you know, you pull up a chair at a table as a 14-year-old and you don't know anyone there. And a lot of the other guys are from 
certain areas in the Midlands, little pockets, they play in the same leagues. I didn't have that. Southampton, I guess, was a little bit different. Watford, I was the only one in my age group. You know, Milky, Jason Drysdale was a lot older, so it wasn't as if I was mixing with them. Um, and so I just got used to that through my childhood, really, that slightly awkward feeling of walking into a dressing room and not knowing anyone in there, looking for somewhere to put your bag and, you know, sit yourself down. And, and they're, they're not easy moments for a, for a sort of young teenager. Um, but I think at Swindon at that time, I was just so determined to make a good impression that I wasn't going to let anything like that from outside uh, bother me. And actually, they were a really good group of lads. They were quite welcoming and friendly. It wasn't sort of an intimidating environment to go into in a way. So um, that was fine. But that said, obviously, then when I started as YTS in that July, um, you know, you're, you're, it's a whole different world because you're, you're a first year apprentice and you know, you're quite the second year apprentices. Are, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not an easy relationship that at time. You know? it, they very much want you to know that you're the first year apprentice. You know, it's I guess it's a bit like at, at school when you mix with the older age group. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the time like, what am I in 92, 93 season? So I'm a bit younger. So I'm seven or eight during this time. And this is this is an era where, you know, kids are football obsessed and we look through the programmes. I remember seeing your face many a time. You had John Holloway and Shane Cook, who would go on yeah. to work behind the scenes. John Holloway's still there. I've spoke to Jamie Pittman, Ben Worrell played games. Not many of the age group went on to play. I remember Laidlaw used to always score goals, Steve Lane, Gary Thorne became a big non-league name, so did yourself with Bath City. Yeah. Is it one of these things that you look back on and think, oh, I wish there were seven subs when when I was when I was kicking around or do, is it sort of it's a tricky one for me to ask. It's like so I know, few I know players got through. Yeah, they did. And I think we have to hold our hands up and say we underachieved. You know, I think we underachieved individually. I think we could have done more. Um, I think the one thing I always say, because uh, I'll, I'll say some things that I didn't feel comfortable with and that I think could have been done better in a moment. But I think the first and most important thing that I say is um, I think I ended up at the level where I belonged because I played so many games, 250 games for Bath, I had two and a half seasons at Newport County, played for Salisbury. I played long enough at a really good level in semi-pro football that if I'd have been good enough, I would have been picked up and got another chance in the league. So, you know, that's my starting point. There's no bitterness or uh, resentment in when I look back. Um, but there are things that I think didn't help. And, um, yeah, certainly in that time, uh, obviously, yeah, you look at it now with seven subs and there are bound to be, you'd hope, more opportunities. Some people would say, well, OK, there are a lot more foreign players. Um but uh, I think, in a way, um, there are there are certain levels greater chances. I mean, we'll fast forward a little bit here, but I'll mention it as we're on this discussion. Probably Swindon going up, which we were all jumping up and down about at the time, was probably the worst thing that could have happened for us. You know, and don't get me wrong, it was it felt brilliant. You know, I'll never forget that that game that night at the Vere Hotel. The season in the Premier League and all the fun around that and what it was like seeing great players come into Swindon. But in terms of if you step away from all that and think from a youth team player's point of view or from a young professional's point of view, it wasn't particularly good. It was going to be really hard. And you look at the players that came in during that 93-94 season and you know, you're talking about your sort of Brian Kilkline, Jalari Sanchez, Frank McAvenny, 
um, Terry Fennick, and then I think we had Neil Webb, didn't we, the following season, yep. was it? A lot of those players ended up in the reserves with people like myself because um, they hadn't been able to sort of create the impression, perhaps, whoever it was John wanted and became clear that their best best days not to be unkind were behind them. And then they were just, but but they ultimately they were another another sort of uh, hurdle to try and climb over, another person who was blocking your path to the to the first team. So you know it it, it wasn't it wasn't easy in that respect. Um, but you know I look back in other ways and think think you know like Ben was Ben was probably the big hope at that time. You know Ben had come from Lillishaw. He'd been captain in England at schoolboy level. He we didn't know this at the time, but it later transpired. He had a two-year professional contract pre-agreed, I believe, Ben. You know, none of us were in that situation. We were only going to find out whether we got a pro contract at the end of our second year as apprentices. So, you know, if, if anyone you'd have thought at age 16 when I first joined Swindon was going to go on and do something, you'd have probably said, Ben, but we all know, Rich, it's not that, you know, the graph isn't smooth, that the curve isn't smooth, but all sorts of things happen and that you can't always legislate for. And so... It, you know, it is a shame. I think it's a particular shame when you look at our youth team uh, in my second year as an apprentice. And, and we had a really good side then. And we went into that final game of the season knowing I, I, I can't, I don't know if we needed to beat Palace. We certainly needed to at the very least avoid defeat. And I remember the first, we, we played it at the county ground, which which I, looking back, was a mistake. Um, I think the... The stadium, um, although a lot of us have played in the reserves fairly regularly, it just it's just a big change from playing games up at Wombra. And I remember there being a John Gorn or someone who put a notice on the board. I think we may have played. I think the first team may have been at QPR away that day. I'd have to check. Um, but either way, there was a notice on the on the on the board wishing us the best of luck. I can remember seeing that, um, and we just froze on the day. But leaving aside that. We'd had a long unbeaten run that season to get into that position. So we were one of the best youth teams in that league, um, comfortably. And yet, sadly, you look at us individually, none of us really went on to do anything. Jamie probably did better than anyone. Um, and we're still talking about, you know, someone who, and I'm, you know, fair play to Jamie, but someone who didn't really go on to do what, say, I don't know a I'm trying to think of people now, like a Ty Gooden, someone like that, who had a more distinguished career, if I can put it like that, in the in the in the football league. So, yeah, there is there's certainly um, disappointment there that, that none of us really came through, if you like. Mm. Let's go back to '92 because there's loads to get through on on this time, and I mean, it's not every day that you you first year as a, as a youth has a documentary sort of. Uh, team around you some of the time because that's when that's football was being recorded and the youth team are involved in that as well I'm pretty sure you're in a Liverpool shirt in in one of those um, scenes <laughs> that's bizarre because I got no but I always in those days used to have um, I remember Hoddle remarking on it once I, I always had a football shirt of any description I remember I had a Marseille shirt I had a Blackburn Rover I, I had all sorts I just lived in football shirts um, yeah you're right I'm in the home dressing room when I think is is Benno taking the Mickey out of Oggy, like the poor Hunt. I think something like that, isn't it? Is that right? And there's one, there's there's that, and there's I think John Trollope's giving a dressing down to, I think Jamie Pittman's getting the. Uh, yeah, you're yeah in the I do I didn't play that night. Um, I don't believe anyway. But an Allied Counties game that was, wasn't it? And uh, John's giving one of his uh, one of his famous um, ticking offs. But unless I'm mistaken, and I could be, 
I don't believe John swears anywhere in that clip. And and that was John. John was a real hard taskmaster, um, a real disciplinarian. Got so much respect for him, so much respect. Um, I think, you know, your values, first and foremost, come from your parents. But school teachers, football coaches can be hugely influential as well. And John Trollope was definitely that in terms of myself and a lot of other people I play with. You know, someone like Shane Cook, who ended up being on the bench for the first team in the Premier League. Me and Cookie are still really good pals now. And uh, and if Cookie and me ever mention uh, Trolley, as we call him, we'll only speak in, you know, speak about him with the highest regard. You know, that, that was the sort of impact he had on us. So, yeah, I think I remember thinking that, you know, there were other people I played under at Swindon who would effing blind in all the rest. Um, but that comes into my head then when you mentioned that Ally Countess scene with Jamie Pittman on the on the Channel 4 programme, because I, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure that John didn't swear anywhere, but he could still have that ability to make you feel uh, <laughs> like you'd really let him down. Uh, so, yeah, it was weird having the cameras around at that time. I remember doing something, I told someone about this recently, um, uh, with Hoddle at times he'd get all the players together, he'd get the youth team, the reserves and the first team training together sometimes, often doing technical work, pairs and you'd all have to get with a partner and obviously needless to say no one wanted to go with Glenn on that, you know you don't want to be with a player manager and um, none of the first team were going to do that. Um, and I ended up with him one day, uh, and thankfully this footage never made the um, <laughs> documentary. But we were doing this pair work, I don't know, probably eight to ten yards apart, and he'd have you doing things that were really challenging. I'm not just talking about volleys, side foot volleys back. He'd have you like doing a sort of high controlled volley back to him, both feet. And I've just got this image in my head that I've never been able to shake out my head of Glenn running behind to get the ball that I'd kicked, obviously not back into his hands from my weaker foot that was just going anywhere. Um, and when it was vice versa, me serving to Glenn, me being terrified that my throw wouldn't be perfect for him to volley. Um, but every volley him doing, and I still don't know what's his best foot, best foot now, but left, right foot, left, right foot, just straight back into my arm. So... Yeah, that, that kind of scarred me a little bit, that experience that day and um, uh, in a nice way. It, it, that was, you know, classic Glenn really doing the sort of technical work that was probably overlooked by a lot of people at that time. Yeah. But yeah, the Channel 4 thing was was strange. We didn't have a load of involvement with it, but we were obviously aware of the cameras, you know, being around the place at times. And um, uh yeah, it may, obviously, little did they know when they started it, it was going to have the most perfect ending with Swindon going up to the Premier League. Very much so. Now, Glenn Hoddle, of course, you know, for, for especially, for, I mean, Glenn Hoddle, as I've said a few times on this podcast, was the first footballer I ever saw who was who I clearly thought he's world class. Now, I had players who I, I was a big fan at that time of, of Nicky Summerby and Kevin Horlock and Sean Taylor and players like that, but none of them could do what what Glenn Hoddle could do what was it like because I believe you were didn't you clean his boots I cleaned his boots in fact my first day at Swindon we there's an area out the back of the ground on that part that was called in the club was called the extension and so we go and train on the extension which was always just a you know normally you'd go up to Wombra but this was just a sort of short-term thing and um, we had a six aside that day on my first day, I think we had to be there about midday. So we went out in the afternoon and Glenn came out and said, you know, can I join in kind of thing. So we played with the apprentices. And I was, you know, how surreal is that? Sure, you're 16 years old. It's your first day as an apprentice. And Glenn Hoddle's on your six-a-side team. I mean, it doesn't, 
I probably peaked that day. Little did I know that was as good as it was ever going to get, Rich, in 1992. Uh, so, um, yeah, it, a few days later, we were sat in the visiting changing room at Swindon and someone had a little Tupperware tub and all the names were in the hat of the every member of the first team squad and the coaching staff. And genuinely, Hoddle hadn't even crossed my mind. I don't think, I think maybe because I was just thinking purely as players. Um, and yeah, a few in, I just put put my hand in and pulled out, read out the strip and there it was, Glenn Hoddle and everyone just started laughing and I thought, oh crikey, I've got my work cut out for the next year. Um, and the other two I got, you, some people got three players, some got two. I got Dave Bennett, who, bless him, broke his leg in pre-season. So I didn't have any boots to clean all season. Those his world, I can still see his Adidas World Cups up on the uh, peg, never untouched. And uh, Steve White and Chalky, um, who, uh, how can I put this? Well, I'm sure other people have probably said that Chalky was fairly tight with his money. Chalky cleaned his own boots. And I, I'm to this day convinced that he did that so he didn't have to give me a tip at Christmas. Uh, <laughs> so really, I just had Glenn's. I'd have to get the training kit ready for Steve. And, and Glenn was quite particular he had um i seem to recall he had a pair of white socks that i had to remember rummaging through the laundry basket every day trying to find these socks that were different to everyone else's um his wet top you know all those things you wanted to be perfect sort of rolled up in a towel they were and then um and then his boots obviously which he had these puma kevlers i remember he came in with them early that season just handed them over to me and said um you know good luck with these kind of thing because they weren't uh, it wasn't like a leather that you polished. It was really strange. So, yeah, that was a, um, <laughs> a bit of a challenge. He gave me 20 quid at Christmas, Glenn. I can remember that. Um, I don't think Chalk, obviously, I did Chalk his kit and do his boots, Steve White. I think Chalky gave me a fiver on the night, Swindon won promotion to the Premier <laughs> League, which, uh, you know, judging by all the, the rumours about the bonuses, that was a pretty small percentage, I think. <laughs> I was. I was grateful for it nonetheless. Uh, so, so yeah, I did uh, look after Glenn's stuff all that, all that year, um, which yeah was was funny. I'm, I'm not long after Christmas, I remember him. He made a little remark to me about his. He wore Puma Kings for his moulded, and he said they were a bit hard on a Friday. It was um, the, the leather was a bit hard, and the problem was we all went to college on the Thursday, so the players' boots would just get chucked back in the skip. Ordinarily, after a training day, you'd come back to the county ground, clean the boots, hang them up to dry. But on a Thursday, it was our college day in Bristol, and so you couldn't pick the boots up until the Friday morning. So you'd get them wet, cleaning them, and then you'd put them under a hand dryer. I can see it now in the home dressing room, a hand dryer in the loose, trying to dry them off. But obviously, then they go a little bit hard, and then you'd sort of then put the polish on them. And yeah, so I thought that was a bit harsh of Glenn to complain, but I wasn't gonna, wasn't gonna say anything back. I just. Like everyone else, I was just hanging on his every word at that time. So, uh, and and it's interesting with Glenn because he gets, he gets, I guess he divides opinion, doesn't he, Rich? You know, outside of Swindon or the rest, maybe within Swindon as well. But he was so good with us young players. You know, I look at the ways he would re he would integrate some of us in that training, like I spoke about, and also I was playing in the reserves in that my first year as an apprentice. I probably played about a dozen reserve games. I think helped by the fact that it was there were three centre halves in that system, and I was one of them. So I only needed one of those to drop out, you know, and it, it was easier to get in the team than say if I was a left wing back, something like that. And Glenn would always be at those reserve games unless there was a first team commitment, and he'd always after the home games and usually away as well come in the dressing room afterwards and talk to you about how you did. 
um, collectively and individually as well. And sometimes then when I was dropping his boots off at Wombra, taking them around his kit to a separate little dressing room they had, see him there and he talked to me about my game. And I've you know got so much respect for Glenn in that way because I don't think every, well, I know every first team manager isn't like that. <laughs> no, he, he was interested in your development as a, as a young player when in reality he must have known he was in the nicest possible way passing through Swindon. He probably wasn't going to see you much after that. So, um, yeah, he, brilliant in that respect. And just watching him was an absolute joy. I'll, I'll never forget that Sunderland goal. I think that was the opening day of the season, was it? Yeah. I, I, I found the ball at his feet and he had his fingers going across that because he was trying to get the strikers to switch because he was, you know, the ball's at his feet and he's not even, yes. A little bit of movement, that shoulder drop and then just ping into the top corner and you're sat there thinking, oh my God, how good is that? Yeah, I completely agree. I I see it's common sense for senior sort of coaches to try and bring in the youth. Paolo Di Canio pretty much cut, you know, the youth team completely away from the first team during that during that time, and it just doesn't make sense to me. You know, it's yeah. just it's just well, what's the point of having them if you're not going to sort of involve them? In I can understand limited, bring them in if they've earned it and things like that, but not bring them at all. It's, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But it's really. Did you have much interaction with the with the first team players during that time as well? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, and some of them. You know, everyone's everyone's different in terms of how you how you get on with those players. Um, I don't think I ever really got closer to some of the first team players until the following year, more when I was a second year apprentice, and I was probably playing a bit more regularly in the reserves then. Um, but yeah, there were people who'd have some fun with you. You know. Um, Johnny Monk, <laughs> I remember going up to Tramier as a fan to watch the second leg um, and uh, the team coach poured in and John saw me out the kind of window and then he, um, the next day he saw me at the training ground he said, who'd you got there with Stu, you go up on your jack and and I said, Jack, who, who's Jack and obviously it was John talking Jack, John, you know, Cockney slang kind of thing and uh, and that was just classic, classic John Moncur when I spoke to him the other day he was, um, was he talking about Jan's substitution in that game? He said he was just about to be brought off prior to scoring the goal at Portman Road. And he said, oh, it wasn't the electronic thing in those days. He said it was the pop-up toaster. And I said, what do you mean the pop-up toaster? And he's obviously talking about the substitution board. That was John's whole, whole lingo. And he, he was good with us young players. Martin Ling was a nice guy. Buzzer was a little bit mad, as you can probably imagine. Um, I remember Kev Horlock being very friendly. Uh Sean Taylor, Colin, Colin dropped us right in it actually, and um, massively, and and uh, um, yeah, I don't know what Colin was thinking of. We we had a, the Christmas. None of us would. John was a disciplinarian, so you were never gonna, you know, never gonna step out of line at all. Or if you did, the last thing you wanted was John to find out about it. Um, anyway. We were all invited to the Christmas do that 92-93 season and we went along there and then the first team players started buying pints for us and yeah obviously I've got to say none of us had enough about us to say no we shouldn't be drinking these um, and with a little bit of encouragement from them and zero willpower from us we ended up getting absolutely pissed. Um, we, we, were, we were leathered and you know 16-17 years old we ended up getting on, up on stage, dancing to Whitney Houston, I can remember, um, and singing to Whitney Houston, almost like a karaoke thing. Um, and, yeah, we were trolled really. And we, we got back. That was a Wednesday. 
Thursday we went to college, so John hadn't seen us. And then on the Friday, Colin said to John, um, like in the corridor, joking, oh, John, you should have seen your boys the other night. Yeah, they were up on the stage, absolutely hammered, singing, and we're all there thinking, no, Colin, no, no, no. So we hadn't trained very well that Friday morning as well. John pulled us all in for a meeting. He's always in the visiting change room. I don't know why. I've got a meeting in there. And then he read us the right act. And um, he said, so if you think you're going to be having the sort of Christmas you thought you were going to be having, you can forget it. You're going to be running. And we did. And so myself and a couple of other boys, not everyone had been drinking, but certainly myself and a few others had. And... Um, I went along to John, knocked on his office door and said, look, I don't think it's fair that you're punishing everyone when, you know, there were a few of us who were worse than the others. And, you know, classic John just, you know, it was like, well, I you know, appreciate your honesty, but if one does it, you all do it kind of thing. So in a way, I made it worse for myself. Do you know what I mean? I tried to help the other lads out, but now John knew that I was one of the main protagonists and, uh, and it wasn't going to make a blind bit of difference. So... We, uh, yeah, we ended up running all over that Christmas. But yeah, I remember for, for weeks afterwards looking at Colin, who was such a nice man and, you know, respectable pro. He was captain, obviously, Swindon legend. But thinking, Colin, you must, you know John Trollope well. What on earth are you thinking? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was that. Something from that first season that, because of Rich Banyard's fantastic archive website, it, yeah. it makes my life so much easier because I can just sort of a couple of clicks and I can see your entire youth career. And yeah. something that gets me from 92, 93 before we go into the Premier League year is the sheer amount of football you guys are playing. You're playing in like two leagues, all the cups, just seems to be football, football, football at that stage. And now they, they don't want so much football, do they? No, it's true, actually. Um but the Allied Counties was probably good in a way because it gave us a chance to experiment a bit more. And the standard was obviously lower, Rich. Mm. Um, is the line all right, by the way? Yes, fine here. Yep. Fine. Okay, sorry. Yeah, the standard was a little bit lower. Um, and so you could play with a little bit more freedom. But John always expected exactly the same from you. Uh, looking back, we struggled that first season, the youth team. And I think there was a disproportionate number of first-year apprentices compared to second years. And if I remember right, at times, the whole back five, Andy Kearns, left wing back, Jamie Pittman, right wing back, myself, Steve Reeves, Dave Elsie, yeah, we're all first years with Kev Phillips, the goalie behind us, who was a second year. So it was a pretty inexperienced team. And yeah, we, we, we didn't do particularly well. Um, but we didn't mind that. So that extra football, the Allied Counties football was good in a way. And I have to say this, John was a really good coach. Now, John was coaching you in an era when a lot of people weren't doing that. A lot of people were just football training. And there's a fundamental difference for me. And I think, sadly, towards the end of my time at Swindon, I was football training, not being coached. But with John, um, he was always putting on sessions to try and make you better. He was working alone, which I was chatting to you know a friend of mine, Jimmy Fraser, recently about. And, and we were saying it's amazing when you look back. He didn't have any other outside help, really. Uh, Adrian was very much someone who spent his time in the office, Adrian Ridderford, the youth development officer. Um, but John's training sessions were always different, interesting, engaging. You knew you couldn't ease off in any way. We were never allowed to wear a pair of tracksuit bombs, which um, which I look now and think it was, was bonkers, really. But it would have been unthinkable to put on a pair of tracksuit bottoms at Wombra, even if it was bitter, freezing dreadful weather you would not have done it you'd never worn a pair of gloves you'd never worn a hat 
John wouldn't have done any of that, so you didn't do any of that. that. You can still see him now with his socks pulled up, his little tie-ups. Um, he was always, you know, immaculate and, and and ready to go, come what may. So, yeah, uh, there were a lot of games, but it, it was fine. But in terms of that youth team, really, the only thing we did well in was the was the FA Youth Cup, where we got close to getting to the quarterfinals. We beat Arsenal 5-2 at home at the county ground on a crazy night. I think they had someone sent off, might even have been their goalkeeper. Um, but I remember the scoreboard, that digital scoreboard at county ground, it, it still said... Swindon five, Arsenal two. For days afterwards, they kind of did a midweek game. They kind of left it on there, and uh, that that was probably the highlight of the season. But from a team perspective, um, but if I'm honest, Rich, it, 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 we weren't a particularly good youth team. You know, it, in in that time, this the mix the following year was far better. Yeah, just so people know the the two divisions that you were in. So you were in the wonderfully named. Uh, South East League, weren't you? In, which is where you played Tottenham and Brentford, Southampton, Crystal Palace, things like that. And the other league that you mentioned there, the Allied, was things like Kintbury and Basingstoke and Hungerford, where the majority of them you would absolutely tonk. And I think you lost the last game of the season, which is really weird. But I imagine you had sort of thoughts elsewhere. But it, it, it's one of those, it would probably good for morale, isn't it? Sort of like, get, get a quick 11 1 through and then. Uh, and obviously, I mean, Hungerford were quite good, if I remember right. And I think they had a few boys who'd been let go by Swindon in the younger years. And there was always a little bit of edge to those games when we played them. But fundamentally yeah, the, the, the obviously the key matches were the ones in the in the southeast counties as you say against some good teams you know palace was always a, a tough match wimbledon at that time were really competitive at youth team level um and yeah i think southampton uh reading um yeah they, they were you know, they were really enjoyable games and actually i played in a few of those um for the youth team when i was kind of on trial um in that going back to that sort of just before signing in the summer of 92 uh i think maidstone were a football league club then um so that that they, they were they were they were um you know good matches for us and and we always played the same way the first team did it was that sort of three five two system mm. well played Hoddle. you're listening to the low strangers podcast proudly sponsored by the STFC Official Supporters Club. Well, let's talk about the Premier League season now, 93-94, because as you said, I can completely understand why that sort of holds you back. We can see first-year young pros that were held back through the Premier League year, people like Wayne O'Sullivan, Andy Thompson, uh, Austin Berkeley, players that were getting in with Hoddle, but then completely disappeared pretty much throughout the whole of that campaign. That year, you play a lot of reserve football. The youth team do really well, finish second until the last day, um, as you quite rightly. You play alongside Fennec, McAvenny, Luke Nyholt, Fraser Digby, Steve White, Paul Bowden, Ross McLaren. Just that that sort of integration is... Year two is that integration, isn't it, from the juniors more into the seniors at that stage. But playing alongside such major, major names from your childhood really as well like Terry Fennick played in World Cup 86 and things yeah, like that and then there you were playing alongside them it must have been just so surreal yeah absolutely and um, but also the players you came up against I remember because also in that era what was great was that the reserve games were nearly always played on the home of the first team uh, at the first team ground so you played Arsenal at Highbury I remember playing at Highbury a couple of times, you know, which is incredible. I remember playing there with the mural. Mural was being done behind the goal, and 
playing against Paul Davis there, um, Mark and Alan Smith. Paul Dickov at that time was coming up through and was a real like nasty piece of work, but in an, in an effective way. So they were huge tests for you. You going from playing maybe you know I don't know an Allied Counties game against the sort of teams you were saying to suddenly coming up against seasoned pros in a way that you wouldn't now because reserve team football doesn't really exist now in that way. So um, yeah, it was great. And some of those um, some of those pros who came into the youth te- uh, into the reserves who dropped down who couldn't get in the first team were so so good. I mean, in terms of how they interacted with you, I think of someone like Brian Kilkline springs to mind immediately. Killer was was amazing. He, he was obviously frustrated that he wasn't playing in the first team at times, but always really helpful with his little bits of advice. And the most key thing of all would be that he would give everything in those matches, which not everyone did, you know, if they were a first team player, because what for, what for us was a bonus playing at Upton Park or Highbury for them was a negative because there was no one in the stadium. You know, we weren't worried about that at 17, 18 years old. It was just amazing to be playing in this incredible arena. Whereas for them, it must have seemed so strange to be playing in front of three, 400 people in a stadium that held 25, 30,000 people. So it would have been easy for them to be demotivated. But someone like Killer, Nicky Hammond, Hammer was always amazing, you know, uh, to have behind you. He gave everything in those matches. Um, but it, it, it was good, but it also was hard at times. I think there were some younger pros, um, not even younger almost, sort of now 23, 24, um, who, who probably resented a little bit being in that environment and thought they should have had more first-team opportunities by that point and were a bit fed up of playing in the Neville Ovenden combination kind of thing in a way that we weren't. And and they weren't always easy players to play alongside, to be honest. Um, I, 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 I sometimes found reserve football, and this may be, and I've touched on this to, um, you know, a few people uh, since in, in terms of just friends and that. I, I think sometimes I wasn't mentally strong enough to deal with that. I spoke to Fjortoft about it, Jan, actually, <clears throat> excuse me, a few a few days ago. He was talking about his son, Marcus. And... Um, I, I think I, I was always quite a deep thinker and I don't think that helps as a footballer at times. I think you can overanalyze stuff. I think I thought about things an awful lot before the game. When I was on the pitch, I was thinking too much about the game instead of just playing with freedom. And certainly afterwards, I'd overanalyze things as well. And, uh, you know, Jan was saying that sometimes you can be, um, uh, I, I don't want to say it's about myself, it's you can be too intelligent uh, as a footballer at times because you... You, you just overthink everything. And I think I did that a little bit. And I say all that in the context of going into that reserve environment. I didn't always find it easy. Didn't always find it easy playing under Andy Rowland. I didn't always find it easy playing alongside some of the players I did. Um, and then you can become a bit inhibited in how you play. If you're mentally weak, which I think I was, you don't um, play the pass that would really achieve something. You play the pass that won't get you a telling off. And it will mean you keep the ball. And so you're not really being yourself on the pitch. Mm. And I can't, um, as much as I find that environment difficult, that comes back on me, Rich, ultimately. I have to be mentally stronger to deal with that. And I don't think I was at that time. I often think if I knew then what I know now, I'd like to think I'd approach it very, very differently. Um, but I think that meant at times that I probably didn't do myself justice. Um, I probably worried too much about things. Mm. And and essentially, when you talk about 
yeah, yeah, you're great playing alongside some of those players you mentioned for sure. I remember playing alongside John Monker at Upton Park. I think John got sent off actually. Um, uh, and uh, Mickey Hazard, I mean, what a player he was. Um, so that was great. But sometimes there was a bit of an element of trepidation when you got in the visit in change room when we got away from home, for example, and, and you picked up the team sheet. And you saw who was playing for the other team, especially because reserve football, you could it could change so much in terms of the sort of team you had. If there was a first team game the same night, you'd be going with a really young team. If there was, if there wasn't, then you might have quite a decent side. But you could go to somewhere like I don't know Norwich, and you know you'd sort of look down. I remember going there and seeing Akinbayi, Akinbayi, Curate, and Anidi up front, and you're thinking, oh my word, this could be a long night. You know, Daryl Such, Rob Newman, people like that playing. And the same at West Ham, I remember playing against Del Gordon there, um, you know, a long list of names. And I remember Eddie, Eddie Murray, um, Eddie, Eddie had this habit of he'd pick up the team, team sheet and he'd look round and then just start singing There Maybe Trouble Ahead, um, <laughs> out of obviously a shot of the manager or whatever, but you'd all have a little giggle, but you'd all know deep down he was spot on as well kind of thing, because, you know, you'd you just look around, you change your room as you do and think, what have we got here tonight? And then you'd see what they've got and think, oh my God, this could be a long evening. And I remember losing one game at Norwich at Carrow Road, 7-0. And the scoreboard didn't stop flashing. I remember I just uh, it was a long, long evening in every way. Uh, so, yeah, so the pros and cons of that situation, really. Um, and it, Jimmy Fraser afforded me some. He, he's brilliant, Jimmy. He keeps everything. Uh, some programs the other day, uh, photos of them, the program notes. And there's one where Ross McLaren's saying, you know, exactly that scenario I gave you. Well, we, you know, we went with quite a um, young team because of first team commitments and. I think that was how Ross worded it, and and that's what it was like. You you, you could have uh, yeah a very strong team one game and a very weak team the next, and and you never knew what you were going to come up against the other end. Yeah, I think another one for the cons as well, and this is something when I was clicking through each game to look at the lineups, there'll be there'll be including yourself, there'll be games where so and so plays, and then a week later they lose their place to experienced senior pro, so it's sort of disjointed, and you're not getting as much reserve football because they suddenly they need they need Fennec to play they need Bowden to play that position and then suddenly you're out and that can't be good for your own sort of confidence and faith in your own ability because one minute you're sort of playing and the next minute you've got to make way because so-and-so's got to come in absolutely you never had a clue you, you could do you could play really well in the reserves and you could easily be out of the team the following game. And in fairness, I think it's probably the most difficult team to manage in the club mm. because of those reasons. Said there's no continuity in terms of your lineup. You're not working with the same players in training. Sometimes you're working with demotivated first team players. Sometimes you're working with youth team players who aren't quite at the level. So in fairness to someone like Andy Rowland, it probably would have been you know really challenging at that at times mm. uh, because you just didn't ever have a settled team. And you have Andy Rowland in the Premier League season and then Ross McLaren in the following one. Is that right? That sounds right, yes. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, I got on OK with Ross. But, again, I look back and think it was a strange one, really. I, I don't know all the ins and outs of that. Genuinely, I don't. Um, but I think Ross at that time, maybe a bit, he clearly had time left on his playing contract and he wasn't going to play. And they were trying to find a role for him in the club and he ended up being reserve manager. And again, reiterate, got on fine with Ross, but Ross hadn't had, as far as I'm aware, any coaching experience at that point. And it's a quite a really key stage of your football career for a young player. I just signed as a first year pro, 
um, five of, I think five of us were taken on um, out of that youth team. And uh, you're still learning the game so much at that point. And that's where I touched on earlier to you when I said that with John Trollope, I felt we were always doing coaching. And then I felt it moved towards training. And they're very different for me. Training for me is is like doing some crossing and shooting in a five-a-side. You know, coaching is breaking things down and individually working with players, which again isn't always easy because people haven't always got the time. And um, also working collectively on you, tactically, technically, that kind of thing. Again, though, it's not easy because of what you said about the reserve team. You you could have six people training with the reserves, you know, one day, and then you could have 12, 15 the next. But I still think... Um, I still think it, it wasn't ideal how things evolved at that time. And, you know, I, I, think I wouldn't be alone in wondering how different it could have been if if we'd have had, you know, a greater emphasis on trying to on trying to coach us really at that point. That said, I think I really lost my way around 94 off the field as well, if I'm honest with myself. 92 to 94, my two years as an apprentice, I worked so hard. I actually used to go to the gym before training. We had a gym we could use not far from the county ground and used to really annoy him, I won't name him because it shames him a bit. But um, one of the lads I live with uh, and I had the car, I had to take it. We lived in Diggs um, out in West Swindon and um, we had to drive into the county ground every morning and I wanted to get up early and go to the gym. He didn't, but he had to come in with me. So we'd sit in the car, waiting in the car park well, I went in the gym and he's he's embarrassed about this now. He says, I can't believe I didn't get out of the car and come in with you. But that was a measure of how hard I worked during those two years. So I played a fair bit of reserve football as well. And I thought I really deserved to get that pro contract. But equally, I, I could have probably few complaints about being released at the end of my first year pro because, and, I, and I'll always have to you know deal with this myself. I don't think I gave it everything during that year. I just think I got sidetracked, um, I can't believe that when training finished, I wouldn't stay out and do extra. Don't get me wrong, I don't think anyone did. But I don't understand. When I think about it now, I think, you know, one o'clock, why didn't I go out there and do half an hour on my left foot? And I've said this when I've gone in and done a few talks with um, football clubs, with, you know, young players and that kind of thing about making the most of every opportunity you get. Because I can't look in the mirror and say I did that when I was a pro at Swindon. Would it have made any difference? Possibly not, because of what I said earlier about I played a lot of games at semi-pro level. If I'd been good enough, I'd have got another chance. But I have to come back and say, I didn't give myself the best opportunity of succeeding after I turned pro at Swindon. Um, I think looking back, and I blame myself for this, I'd have probably been better off living at home for a year after being in digs for two years. Instead, I moved into a house with three young pros. We had a lot of fun, as you can probably imagine, with four young lads living together. But I don't think it was an environment that was really conducive to getting the most out of your football ability. We lived too near to Cairo's nightclub um, and spent too much time in there. And it was all a bit of fun, really, instead of being what it what it should have been. Um, you know, we'd have uh, parties and the like there. And and yeah, I look back and if I could, if I could, so often people will say I have no regrets, which I feel is a real cop out unless you've had a perfect life. I do have regrets. I wish I'd done some things differently at that time. Uh, I don't think it helped me personally, John Gorman being sacked. Um, because John was one who gave me pro and I thought John had a lot of faith in me. But I didn't 
fundamentally, I didn't do enough to impress Steve McMahon. Do you not think, like, when you turn 18 and you've gone, you know, from Bristol, you've done Southampton, you've gone up to Villa, you've had trials at Watford, you get your, you get your YTS or your youth contract at Swindon and you make it. You get through that those two years and you get a pro deal. And I think sometimes with some pros, rightly or wrongly, they see that as the moment like all the work has paid off. But of course, it's maintaining a, a professional career, which is really the big achievement, whether it's in the Premier League or even in the National League. It's just maintaining. And I think sometimes 18-year-olds just, it's a relief, isn't it? It's a release of the sort of energy where they've done it, they've proved themselves and now... They can have a little bit more fun, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't think for a moment I was complacent about anything. I really don't think that was it. I, I didn't sign that first year pro, £175 a week it was, um, and, and think I've made it at all. But for whatever reason, I just, I just didn't have that same level of commitment, which is awful when I stop and think about it. I also think I became... We had, I don't know, I haven't looked through those reserve results, but in my memory, we had quite a few heavy beatings in that reserve team that season because we ended up with quite an inexperienced team uh, often. Yeah, we probably underperformed as well, but um, I just had the, in my mind that we went quite a lot with some second year apprentices and young pros and, and after a while you're getting turned over again and again and again and it wasn't, this, this wasn't like now where you go and analyse matches afterwards. In fact, what used to, I remember us losing a game at Northampton, who weren't in the reserve league. It was a friendly match that had been organised. And uh, I, I discussed this with Dean Hooper recently. Um, and we performed badly. We lost 5 1, 5 2, something like that. They had us in for running the next day. And McMahon sat in the stand at the county grounds. Remember, it's clear as day. It was an afternoon, and we had to do laps around the pitch. And uh, it was like sort of, you know, five, four, three, two, one was the thing that people used to do at times. And five laps, four, three, two, one. And it was one of the worst running sessions I've ever done. And we just thought we'd finished with the last lap. And as we were going down the tunnel, McMahon said, no, one more. And everyone's legs had kind of gone. I remember Dean, I, I picked Dean up, Dean Hooper, by the back of his sort of jumper he'd sort of almost collapsed on the on one of the corners on one of the horseshoes and um uh and yeah sort of, sort of halfway round and, and dragged him back up to his feet to get through that whole i stop and think that that was that was the culture in those days that if you played badly i don't know if i'm allowed to swear or not rich but you are. run the bollocks off you that was the way it was. That wasn't just Swindon. That was a lot of places. If you play badly, you run the bollocks off you the next day, which is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. It was like we've got to punish you for that. At no point when you played badly do I remember someone sitting down with me, other than John Trollope, who we had we had um, log books that were done, and I can't remember the frequency, but John did that meticulously, and I know it wasn't done like that at every other club. But I don't remember once I turned pro, anyone sitting down with me and trying to talk through my game or trying to talk us through as a team how we could improve tactically, technically. Mm. I think that was just where we were at. And this is what I discussed with Jan Agafjortov the other day when Jan was saying that he's glad Marcus wasn't a young player in that era um, because it was pretty brutal at times, really. And yeah, that so a bad performance at Northampton. The follow-up to that was, you know, run the balls off you running around the county ground the next day. Mm -hmm. 
And I think I think a lot of us, if we're honest, would probably have known what was coming that, towards the end of that season. It was a midweek day, I remember, and I think a load of us were told to sit in there. It was always, I don't know why it's always a way change room, sit in there. And then one by one, we were called in. I think there were 11 of us. And you look around and you know, <laughs> you know, you can tell where this is leading kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and that was um, probably about March, April time. Uh, and playing Bristol Rovers, the reserves and the friendly that night. Uh, and a reserve game member that night. And McMahon left me out of the team because I'd been let go. And I remember John Trollope not being very impressed with that. John saying to me, he thought that was really poor on McMahon's part to do that. Um Almost like, well, because I was still under contract, obviously, but now we won't play you kind of thing. And, uh, yeah, my man called me in, probably in his office for three, four minutes. And he said to me, said to me, oh, he's obviously going to, there won't be a contract for me next season. He said, I need people to go and play in the first team next season. I need young players who are ready to play at that level now. And he said, and I don't believe you're ready to play at that level now, which he may well have been right on, in fairness. And and that was that. It's a brief conversation. The weirdest thing was that day, my dad had driven me to training. I'd moved back home by this point, which if I remember right, the club had encouraged me to do. I think my man even had. And I couldn't use my car that day. So my dad had to drive me from Bristol to the county ground, which made it even worse in a way. Because mm. I came out of training that day, out of that meeting at the county grounds. And I didn't know, I hadn't gone there that day, knowing that mom was going to call us in the office. And, you know, dad, the usual thing, how did it go? You know, training all right. And I've obviously got to say, well, no, I've been released. And uh, and I felt awful. I think I felt worse for my dad. Um, I think I felt worse that I'd let him down than that I'd let myself down in a way. Mm. Because I, all of those things that I'd said to you before that I felt I hadn't really given it my best shot. And my dad had been brilliant over the years, taking me everywhere. Not that I was doing it for him, doing it for myself, but I certainly felt really, really awful breaking that news to my dad I remember um, and and yeah that was that then really the club was going I think 11 of us were released that day uh, and the club was going in a you know a new direction which it probably needed to to be honest right? that doesn't mean I like McMahon I don't like him as a person I'll be totally honest with you I don't but the club did need um, a new approach at that time mm. that, that element of guilt I think is um, something that's quite common through various people that I spoke to it's not about me it's about the sort of the the parental sacrifice over the years and if you know I think that that moment as well because you've got the drive home as well and you know I I think that's quite common and then and then what happens then because I mean I read an article by yourself when you joined the athletic where you had a trial with Chelsea at that stage were there any other trials at that moment in time I just lost the end of that but yeah so the the trial at Chelsea was a really strange one. Um, so after getting let go by Swindon, I had a, a lot of trials all over the country, really. Um, some I played not so well. Um, some I played played well. I remember going down to Bournemouth in particular and playing really well. And at this time now, I'd moved to right back, actually. So um, I think we moved away after a little while, after Glenn left from the 3-5-2 to go into a flat back four. And I'd become more of a right back then. And I felt comfortable in that position. I remember going down to Bournemouth playing uh, down there and doing really, really well. 
and and then them saying afterwards that there was nothing for me and at that point I felt you were playing in trial games it's like you know 11 v 11 and you start seeing the same players at different places you went to you you didn't know at the first club you went to but by the end of it you felt like they were your teammates kind of thing and then you realized actually you know you're just making up the numbers in a way they want to get a game on and they might just want to look at someone in a certain position so I got really disillusioned with all of that um I sat down that summer I sent letters off to Within reason, it wouldn't have been the 92 clubs, but it would probably been about 60 or 70 of them. Uh, probably half of them replied uh, and generally said those no, they weren't looking for any more players. Um, and then uh, around that time, I was offered a contract. Peter Fox was manager at Exeter and he offered me a two-year contract, which, um, again, to come back to regrets, is a big regret of mine because I should have signed that contract. I'd have had a chance to play first team football um, in uh, in the league, and um, around that time, I had I'd actually sent a letter to Chelsea, which was about the only top flight team I wrote to, I think, because Glenn was there, and I'd done well in that first year when Glenn was at Swindon. And lo and behold, I get a phone call out of blue from um, Chelsea inviting me up for a week's preseason, and I thought, what do I do now? So I rang Peter Fox at Exeter told him the scenario and he was really nice about it actually he said look you know but, but he was realistic as well he said like I need to sign someone in your position right back he said I can't wait and wait and wait to see how it goes at Chelsea if you go there then I'll move on to someone else and I weighed up what to do and ended up going to Chelsea and um, yeah I did well the first week um, well did, did fine played one pre-season friendly I remember in what was the third team at that time and uh, then got invited back for another week and then played two games that week, did okay in the first. Second one, I was awful, which was the game that I mentioned in that piece at Chertsey when I did the Cruyff turn on the halfway line, gave the ball away and Michael Dubry gave me a bollocking. Um, <laughs> and uh, Eddie Novitsky was manager of that team. Glenn called me in the next day and I didn't need um, you know, Glenn to say anything because I knew what it was going to be, that there was nothing for me there. And then at that point, you're talking middle of July there and the extra chance is gone and you're not really sure where to turn. And I ended up signing for Weymouth, Graham Carr, the Newcastle scout. Um, I don't know if Graham's still at Newcastle, but he, he, he built up quite a reputation for himself to me a few years ago, signed lots of French players, that kind of thing. Graham was manager down at Weymouth and, um, and I signed down there. It was all a bit surreal, really. Uh, we were staying in a hotel in non-league terms they were going for it they were throwing quite a bit of money at it and he sort of convinced me to be part of this project um darren campbell the olympic sprinter was right wing i was right back um so uh yeah that that, that was odd he was staying at the hotel at that time um with Lee Congerton, who's now Leicester City's head of recruitment and worked at hamburg and celtic with frank arneson he was centre midfield real mixture of players but after four to six weeks, I was really unhappy down there. Um, I couldn't find a job at all. Um, and, and, I, and I needed to do that. Not so much financially, maybe, because we're only training semi-pro twice a week, but to sort of stimulate my mind a bit. And, and being honest, I didn't warm to Graham as a person at all. Um, didn't like his management style. Felt really unhappy there and uh, just walked out one day. I don't think I've ever really done anything like that since, but I'd signed a contract and I just thought I'm, uh, I didn't want to be there and um, came back to Bristol and 
then I contacted Bath City, I think, or maybe they contacted me. I can't remember how it came about. And I went and played for Bath, um, some friendly games, and probably spent a couple of months playing for their reserves and then got into the first team around October, November time, and, uh, which was in the conference at the time. And, yeah, ended up spending five really happy years at Bath. They've got four players forward here, Swindon. Ling going alone for the moment and turns it to Moncair. It's a goal! Swindon have scored! Yeah, and then and then you put followed, and that's where you fall into a career with the prison service as well. Yeah. And that's when you you sort of have that shining light moment after a, after what was probably a very long day to change your discipline to journalism. Yeah, totally. I think you know when you're trying to be a footballer, you you, you as much as my mum and wanted me to do that education stuff at Swindon, you're not really thinking about anything else. You're you're solely focused on football and. And so you're lost when you come out of the game, whether that's probably for some people at 35 or certainly when it's at the beginning of your career, because you just don't know what to do. And and so I did some, you know, weird and wondrous jobs, really. I mean, I stacked shelves, unpacked books in Waterstones for for uh, for about six months. Uh, I remember working for some uh, electronics company in Aztec West where I was bloody hopeless. I don't know how I ended up getting that job, but I didn't last long there. Um, I think the thing was at that time, I fancied being a PE teacher, but at 20 years old, I didn't want to go and study. I'd been earning money at Swindon, not much, not much, but been earning money and I wasn't prepared to go and be a student for three years. So a friend of mine said to me, he'd been let go by Torquay United and he said, why don't you come and be a prison officer? He said, and be a PE instructor in the prison service. He said, you'll get paid straight away to be an officer. Start doing your training. Within a year, you can be a PE instructor. And so that's why I joined the prison service. But it was just impossible to do the PE training, to do my 39 hours a week on the landings as an officer, and to do my semi-pro stuff with Bath, where I needed to be off every Tuesday night, Thursday night, every Saturday. And you were supposed to work every other weekend in the prison service. It's constantly getting people to swap shifts. So I started doing the PE training on top, but it just became too much, Rich. And in the end, I had to um, just stick to being an officer, really, to carry on playing semi-pro football. And um, there were moments at Bath when I, when I was playing well, and I thought I might have a chance of getting back into the pro game. But nothing was ever close. You saw other people who that did happen to, not necessarily at Bath, but in the non-league level. And, you know, the, there becomes that point of acceptance where you realise I'm not good enough. I'm not going to get back in. And I'd say I probably hit that around about 24 years old where you think, do you know what, the dream's died. I need to get my head around doing something else. And at that time, I'd started writing a column for the Bath Chronicle when I was at Bath City, which was through Ken Loach, the director of Bath and the film director, who just approached me and said, would you fancy doing this? The newspaper had been on. Loved it. Really enjoyed writing. I'd enjoyed writing at school. And it just sort of rekindled this interest I had in in in, in, in English. And... Um, and in particular in writing and so from nowhere then I ended up going back to my old school uh, in Bristol I hadn't seen my uh, English teacher for about eight nine years and just said I want to go to university so I'd just you know come, gone sort of 180 degree turn really you know from someone saying to me at 20 years old oh, if you want to be a PE teacher you need to go to uni and he said I'm not doing that <laughs> five years later wanting to be you know the oldest student in town at Bournemouth kind of thing and and that's what I did. I, they had the best media school in the country. Um, I uh, remember going for the interview down there, and the and the, they were 
really oversubscribed for people who wanted to go on the course and and the guy, I think he was just interested in my background. I had something a little bit different. He said, academically, he said, you haven't done any A-levels. I'd done the BTEC at Swindon, which was a waste of time that everyone had to do. Um, but he said, you haven't got any A-levels. So academically, on paper, he said, you're not at the level of the other students. But he said, you've got some really fascinating life experience. You've worked in a prison. You've been a professional footballer. And so they gave me a place on the course on that basis. And I gave that course absolutely everything. I think there was an element on that course of me sort of trying to put things right for that year at Swindon when I lost my way and didn't give it everything as a pro. And year one on the course, I was trying as hard as I was at year three. And I came out with a first class honours degree. I think some people on the course couldn't really understand why I was working as hard as I was, but I was playing catch up in terms of journalism. I wanted to get a really good job when I came out and I knew I was going to be 28 when I graduated. The rest of people on the course, my course were going to be 21. So I felt like I'd lost that time that I wanted to make up for. Um, and yeah, just to be true to myself, I, I wanted to work as hard as I possibly could. And when I went for an interview at The Guardian, I was taking along interviews that I'd done. You know, if on the course we had to go and interview, I don't know, a sports person or something like that, then I wasn't going to go and interview in the nicest possible way the the captain of the Bournemouth hockey team or whoever it was. You know, I was going off interviewing Julian Dix and, you know, Dean Headley, the cricketer, Liz McColgan, the runner. And so I, when I went to the Guardian, I wanted to show what I was able to do and and hopefully them to be impressed. And I think that's how it happened. You know, I remember a few people saying to me, you know, uni, one girl in particular said, oh, you're lucky to get that Guardian job. And I really resented her saying that. Mm -hmm. it's sort of thought, no, I'm not lucky, you know. Um, I, I I gave it everything for three years, you know, and um, and didn't leave a stone unturned. In the same way as I'd say, I'm not. I wasn't unlucky to be released from Swindon. You know, fun, fundamentally, I did nothing to prove Steve McMahon wrong. So, you have to be realistic about these things. Yeah, and that that creates what, 15 years with the Guardian before you moved to the Athletic, and I mean that that alone because print media now especially at local level i mean local level it's dying because of the current situation that we're in swindon yeah. advertiser aren't even doing sport at the moment they you know some would argue that they they've been scaling back on sport for the last year and a half two years but you found yourself on fleet street it's it's something that you know i mean i've read a lot of your articles over the year you've gone all over the place you were pretty much wales correspondent for a good while i seem to i seem to remember because yeah. you were on the uh the football weekly podcast um yeah. covering wales during that fantastic time and you know for all of those disappointments as a player the stars because of hard work the stars have aligned for you and you you've got the reward through what you've put into journalism over the last decade and a half plus yeah, and I feel really, really privileged to have had the amazing opportunities that I had through The Guardian uh, to go and cover World Cups, um, European Championships, you know, sort of things that would have been unimaginable for me when I was at university and just hoping to get a, a, any sort of career in journalism. So I really, really, really feel, you know, blessed in that respect. Uh, there's some real highlights covering Leicester during the Premier League title winning season was was absolutely amazing you know something you could just never have dreamed you'd, you'd end up writing about um ended up being a ghostwriter for Jamie Vardy's book during that season as well which was um which was terrific experience and um you know met so many good friends as well through through journalism and and I guess yeah just being around football still is you, you know you're you're lucky to be doing that because it's 
when I, we started off talking about this conversation about me going to watch Nottingham Forest in 82 as a six, seven-year-old, and here I am 44 and still, touch wood, you know, employed around around football. And, you know, little things have changed over time as well. I think, yeah, I, I've, I've been coaching now for four years just at grassroots level, and, and I absolutely love that. That's made me think a little bit about when I was at Swindon, um, I, I used to coach in the Centre of Excellence when I was a, a second-year apprentice on, I think it was a Thursday evening, and I really enjoyed that. And, and there's a little part of me that thinks, um, oh, I wish I'd continue with that, say like Jimmy Fraser did, you know, and um, because of the, 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 the bit of coaching I've had recently, which, as I say, I've really, really I found so rewarding. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, I can't in any way... Um, you know, regret my decision, I guess, to go into journalism because it's it's given me a lot of fulfillment and enjoyment. I love writing. Uh, I think it gives me, um, I feel a real sense of freedom when I write. And, you know, I had amazing years at The Guardian. But the, the thing I love about The Athletic is that, uh, <laughs> you know, as a writer, you're always trying to get more words uh, in more space. <laughs> Um, and, and that was a, a standing joke at the Guardian where I'd do an interview and come on and say how many, you know, tell them about it. And then they say, I'll oh, give us 1400 or can I not get to 1600 and, and that kind of thing. Whereas obviously you don't have that with the athletics, not a newspaper. You can write as much as you want. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and so that freedom to write is, is, is fantastic. Uh, so yeah, I've, um, I've really, really enjoyed that. I don't think I've been back to Swindon many times over the years. I interviewed Michael Doughty about 18 months ago. Yep, yep. Uh, love speaking to Michael. What a guy. Um, fascinating, fascinating person to talk to. Really super bright and, um, and, and, and a thoroughly nice guy. So I do, I do find, because, I mean, I read The Athletic and I read The Blizzard Quarterly. And I do find now that... Football journalism, we're finally, oh no, it's because people behind the scenes are working hard, but we, we don't just want match reports anymore, do we? Do, we do want the long form. We do want the story behind the story a lot more now, don't we? We have got a thirst for more knowledge apart from, you know, rating six, seven, pass to him and he scores, they go again sort of media, isn't it? Absolutely. It's been a massive change in journalism from the days I started in 2004 when it was a you know, a standard match report. Um, and uh, and it, it wasn't blow by blow account of the game, but it wasn't far off that at times to, to now where, um, yeah, and certainly the style of the athletic reporting is, is really uh, moving away from the, from the game being the main, uh, main focus point. But, and, and I think about this, if I think about it as a fan now, where I take my son's a season ticket holder at Swansea, and when we come out of Swansea, the last thing I want to do is read a report on the game. Mm. You know, I've just watched it. Yeah. And even if I haven't been, say it's an away game that we've not been to, um, then I'll have seen regular updates via Twitter or wherever, you know, on, on various websites. I don't really want a full match report of the game. You know, I want to read something a little bit different. Um, so I think the media's changed and perhaps so have the way that supporters um, engage with the media, which way that relation, you know, which way that started, what drives what is, is open to debate. But yeah, I think, I think there's been a significant move over the last 10 years, but particularly the last few from, from that matter of fact reporting managers quotes to actually what's the story behind the story, that deeper analysis. And uh, 
yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, it makes you think about how you would have found that as a player. <laughs> and I think social media is really challenging. You know, I don't know how I'd have responded to some of the criticism that players get and at all levels, you know, not just first uh, pro level, non-league level as well. Um, you know, that old saying about it's just tomorrow's fish and chip paper, which, which was true. Well, it's not now. It's there on the internet forever. So uh, there's all sorts of issues around that thing. And, and it makes you think about how you report things as well. You know, it does me. You know, if you're being critical of a player, then I think you, you always have to be fair. Um, and, and, and you have to stop and think. It's not being weak as a journalist. Stop and think, how would I feel reading that? So I think you'll be careful. There's nothing wrong with criticism. But when it strays into personal criticism, that's very different. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, you know, I've taken... An hour and a half of your time now, so we're going to wrap up at this point right. because I always get you guys talking far too much. I do apologise for that, but um, my final question to you is for a bit of romanticism. When you close your eyes and you think of your time at Swindon Town, what are your favourite memories? Uh, what a good question. One that's not on the pitch, actually. One would be the De Vere Hotel after the playoff final um, when John Trollope did allow us to drink that night and... Uh, and I remember um, yeah, it just being a, a brilliant, brilliant evening. Myself and Shane Cook actually ended up singing um, Don McLean, American Pie with, uh, with Hoddle um, uh, in, a, in a drunken moment, which, which uh, that, so that song has always meant something special to me ever since. Uh, I, I think of, you know, my days as an apprentice being my favourite days. Brilliant days. We had hardly any money, yet £29.50 a week sat, felt like a fortune at the time. You know, going in there, cleaning the boots, all the camaraderie you'd have in the boot room, the laughs, the joking, the banter, when banter was a reasonable word to use in those days. Um, the, the, the fun, it was just it was brilliant. Um, we probably didn't realise the wonderful opportunity we had at the time, um, but they were really, you know, days that I'll always cherish. Um, yeah, and even, you know, the reserves, as I said, she was a challenging environment at times, but equally, you know, going to play at some of those places like Upton Park and Stamford Bridge and, and Highbury, you know, wow, really, really privileged to have done that. So, um, yeah, they're all, you know, th those moments mean a lot to me, signing my professional contract. Um, when John Gorman was manager, John, what a lovely man, I haven't spoken much about him, but a real gentleman. Uh, cannot speak highly enough of John as a coach and as a person. So, yeah, um, Loads of things, and I guess if his penalty going in at Wembley, you know that from three nil up to three three, and then thinking, oh my God, we've thrown this away, and then you know, Sippy putting that ball in the net, and then thinking, knowing we were going to have uh, an amazing, you know, season ahead. Forget the results; it was going to be brilliant being in the Premier League, and and yeah, a brilliant night that night. <laughs> Stu James, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Rich. Pleasure. The Low Strangers is proudly sponsored by the official STFC Supporters Club. The music was created by the great Matthew Kilford and the artwork was provided expertly by John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon! It's a grand old team to play for, and it's a grand old team to see. And if you know the history, it's enough to make your heart go.
Hi, Alice Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward. Or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times.